You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. Hello, and a very warm welcome to this afternoon's event on the politics of measuring gender equality in education. I'm Esme Kazamira, research fellow at the University of Malawi and your chair this afternoon. I'm speaking from Malawi, where girls' education has been a government priority for the past 30 years. This has resulted in significant improvements in the enrollment of girls at all levels of education, more particularly at primary level. At this level, girls now constitute half the enrollments, a significant improvement from the situation in the early 1990s when girls' enrollment were below 40% of the primary enrollments. However, despite these impressive enrollment gains, challenges still remain. Girls from poor households are least likely to complete primary and transition to secondary school. And gender gaps in enrollment favoring boys remain at secondary and higher education levels. A major focus of my work as a research fellow has been on the interplay between gender and access, educational and learning outcomes. At, um, I want to extend a particularly warm welcome to Elaine, Nicole, Yanchun, and Sharon. Thank you for spending time with us this afternoon. We really appreciate the opportunity to hear and learn from you. In terms of how we run this event, I'll briefly introduce our speakers and then we'll kick off with the presentations. We are also here to respond to your questions. So please send us your questions and comments using the Q&A facility on Slido. You can, tweet, you can also tweet about the event with the hashtag AGEvent. As usual, this event is being recorded and will be posted online. At this juncture, allow me to introduce our speakers. We have Irene Antahata, the principal investigator of the AG project and professor of education and international development at UCL. Nicole Bella, senior education specialist at the UNESCO Global Education Monitoring Report. Yanchung Zhang, Chief of Statistics at the Human Development Office, UNDP. And Sharon Tao, Director of Education, Girls' Education Challenge. I'll, I'll now invite Elaine to, to make, to give her presentations. Elaine, thank you. Thank you very much for the introduction, Esme, and uh, very warm greetings to everyone joining from different time zones. It's great to have your interest and support in, in uh, this uh, presentation of the work from the AGI project. In the presentation I'm going to make, I'm going to draw on the work of the whole AGI team who have brought a wonderful array of in insights and skills into our collaboration. And I'm enormously grateful to work with this wonderful team. Um, the context of this talk is that gender inequality remains a problem all over the world. Gender inequalities intersect with race, class, ethnic, and other inequalities. 
Education, which is widely seen, and I believe correctly, as a way to address and change these inequalities, can also, without constant scrutiny and evaluation, become a setting to reinscribe re or recast inequalities. There is discrimination entailed in keeping girls and boys out of school, not doing enough to support their progress and attainment, and failing to use learning and teaching to think well together about changing inequalities. Gender is personal, political, cultural, social, historically changing, and always under discussion. It's a really challenging area to be working in. And equalities and social justice are also very, um, have their many contours, many difficulties in realizing them. Programs for girls' education and gender equality often lose momentum around wider social transformations. Approaches to evaluation, data, and measurement frequently are technical exercises, not engaged with much public debate around evidence and how or why or by whom it is used. So in this talk, um, I want to, about the politics of gender equality in education and measurement, I want to draw out three themes. Firstly, I want to discuss how we think about gender equality um, and, the, and education and the associated measures used. Secondly, I want to present to you how we in the AG project have sought to address some of the limitations in the, think, in the thinking about this that we've identified. And thirdly, I want to outline what some of the politics, policies and practices of measurement are, which we need to think about at global, national and local levels, given the profound traumas and disruptions of the contemporary moment. It's partly linked with the pandemic, it's partly linked with some appalling conflicts that persist in the world. And we need to think about this in the light of the way that girls' education has been centrally positioned by the G7 Girls' Education Declaration. Gender equalities in education. Uh, let's start with thinking about gender equalities in education. Um, the issue is, do we see this as a problem with some complexities? such as, for example, how we define gender or which phase or modality of education we want to focus on. Is it a kind of complicated for problem for which there's a simple solution, such as get girls into school, ensure they are learning or that they pass examinations? This is approach is a bit like a vaccination, which is why the photo has been chosen. This has been the mainstream fix attempted for many problems associated with development. Education, particularly for girls, is seen as the single vaccination dose that will protect against all our social ills, be they population growth, economic stagnation, or pandemics. Let's set against thus a different way of framing the problem that sees gender inequalities as so complex so interrelated with difficult relationships around poverty, violence, geopolitics, homophobia, personal identity, and the complex instabilities around education 
that we can do nothing more than document little pieces of the picture, but never change it. These two approaches to talk about gender inequalities in education talk past each other, each not quite getting what the other is aiming for. And we think that there's a need for some bridge buildings. So in that process though, um, the two different ways of thinking about gender inequality in education I've sketched out also map onto two different positions of how to define the problem of uh, how to measure and evaluate solutions. The one proposition I have termed what works, because this has been the focus of a mainstream approach in evaluation. Once we have a set of policies and practices that are considered to work, they are widely promoted and we measure their rollout. This approach, this, uh, this approach contrasts with one I have termed what matters. This is the position of many critics of what works who highlight that what matters is, for example, gender equality, human rights, solidarity, care or well-being. These values the critics argue, should frame our analysis. So my position on this has long been to stand in the middle. If something matters, and human rights, gender equality, and social environmental justice matter to me a lot, I really do want what matters to work. Equally, I think that if something works, it's important to know why and how it works and what the implications are for what matters. So in the AG project, we've looked at this problem of politics, evaluation and measurement, highlighting how two communities, one largely associated with practice and one with the academy, tend to talk past each other. In trying to get beyond that kind of miscommunication, we've developed a new approach through our partnership involving four universities. And you can see the icons for the university on the slide. UCL, University of KwaZulu-Natal, University of Malawi, and uh, UEA. Our work has been supported by grants from ESRC and FCDO, and the project has worked in dialogue with a number of UN agencies, NGOs, and civil society organizations. Okay, so in the work on the AG project, what we've addressed is that the standard way of measuring gender issues in education has to be to focus on gender parity. Gender parity entails counting girls as a proportion of boys in enrollment, attendance, attainment, noting women teachers as a proportion of men teachers. So the um, photo on the, on the left is a kind of vision of gender parity. Gender parity is a good, clear indicator, but it, like information on girls participating in particular education projects, does not tell us enough about what matters. Um, gender parity, as used in data collections for education management information systems, tells us nothing, for example, about the sexual division of labor in a household, which may account for why a girl drops out of school, or school-related gender-based violence, which may be a feature of how she does in examinations. Gender parity does not indicate whether gender equality policy exists in education or other areas that link with education, and how policy is implemented. 
It gives no information on whether taxes are spent with the needs of the poorest in mind, taking account of gender. But trying to measure uh, what matters can be a huge headache. There are so many sources of information looking at so many different levels that it's hard to know where to start or what approach to take. Um, in the AGI framework, we've, uh, we've been very fortunate in that um, we have had many critical friends in the world of policy and practice. We have spoken um, who have helped us in this task of where to start. We have spoken through our fieldwork in Malawi and South Africa with people working in government and civil society. Internationally, we have worked with UNGAI, UNESCO and the GAD network. Uh, colleagues at IOE have been working on issues of gender and education and researching it for approximately 30 years, partnering with colleagues in many countries. We've drawn on concepts from the capability approach and experiences those, for example, in UNDP and SIGI, who have used this to develop a conceptually well-organized framework to shape multiple data sources need to evaluate aspects of gender equality. And we've used this experience of working in, with many different people to develop the framework. Um, so this is our... AG framework. In this infographic, you can see the six fields, each of which organizes indicator information and allows us to look at relationships that matter, providing information to evaluate progress towards gender equality in education and addressing girls' needs, rights, and capabilities using a range of measures. The framework is intended to be useful at global, national, and local levels. Conceptually, it draws on the ways the capability approach highlights how opportunities, freedoms, and agency need to be considered alongside outcomes, resources, and measures of subjective well-being. So I'll just talk a little bit through some of the detail of the six domains in the AG framework. So uh, firstly, resources. These are the goods and services required for a gender equitable education system. They comprise money, policy, schools, trained teachers, administrators, support workers, learning materials and information. The second field is values. These are an important part of the context regarding how policy is understood, put into practice or contested. Values are expressed in formal policy frameworks or laws like a constitution and in more informal discourses which describe what people consider right or good. Values include ideas about, for example, rights, capabilities, Ubuntu, national unification, peace, human development or human capital or attention to girls' voices. Thirdly, there is a field for opportunities. These are features of historical and contemporary relationships around education that shape whether there are different gender differences in how differently located individuals and institutions can convert resources into actual opportunities. These relationships, which are sometimes referred to as context, work at global, national and local levels 
and can support or limit gender equality in education. These relationships may form girls' realization of rights or they may give some limited rights in education and take away rights in another area, for example, economic justice. I've referred to this approach as dispersal. Fourthly, there is participation in education. This is the area most frequently monitored by governments in education sector planning. This field looks at gender differences in the capability to participate in education and levels of participation and progress of girls and boys in all levels of education, looking at socioeconomic status, location, race, ethnicity. Fifthly, there are outcomes of education which comprise knowledge, skills, and understanding in relation to formal instructions, such as reading or arithmetic or science, and informal fo formation of attitudes, such as tolerance, peace, gender equality, or sustainability. And sixthly, there is a field for outcomes, which look at support for girls and women and gender equality beyond the education system, for example, in health, in employment, access to social protection, prevention of violence, political participation, the ability to exercise rights and many other areas of human development. So I've given you the detail of the AGI framework, the rationale for why and how it was developed. And I really look forward to your critical comments. Um, in closing, I want to return to some political issues. The G7 foreign ministers meeting in London at the beginning of May agreed two goals for low and lower middle income countries to be reached by 2026. To get 40 million more girls in school and 20 million more girls reading by the end of primary school. The declaration notes, and I quote, we want to empower girls to lead change, including in peace building and in efforts to tackle the climate crisis. There are commitments on gender responsive teaching, catch up classes, and some 15 billion US dollars has been pledged. This is nowhere near enough. As commentators estimate, the annual funding gap for global education is nearly $200 billion. And the UK cuts to the aid budget have been, have been made, sorry, and cuts to the UK aid budget have made, which will have consequences for work on a girls' education. But it's a beginning, and we have to start there. The G7 commitment is linked to the SDGs, where there is a broader agenda signed by virtually all the governments in the world with more targets around gender equality and women's empowerment. It's also linked with the Generation Equality Forum convened by UN Women with six action coalitions. We're not short of policy frameworks nor vision statements at global and national level. Through the pandemic, ideas have been circulated about the need to build back better or build back equal. And one idea I've been discussing could be termed build back careful because it tries to take account of the complexities of the political economy of care, which is often gendered, local and overlooked. But if we are going to make visions work through policy and practice in ways that matter, we need a clear action and evaluation plan to make education systems effectively address gender and intersecting inequalities. 
We need to steer our words to work towards equality, understanding that gender relations in real world settings shape what we wish for and what we do. This is not a task for the education sector alone or just for governments in alliance with education NGOs. This is a task for joining up social policy, linking education with health, social protection, work, politics and culture. It needs respectful engagement with those who suffer most and who are so rarely listened to. It also needs academic and activist scrutiny and critique. We can only measure better together. Thanks very much for listening. In Archie, we look forward to hearing your comments and engaging with you. Our website with lots of information about the framework is going live today. And we have just received a further year of funding for this work. We hope with your participation, we can go further and do more to put the AGI framework into use for measuring gender equality in education. Constantly reviewing the politics, policies and practice we need to steer towards relationships that can change the injustices of the present. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Elaine, for that brilliant presentation. At this juncture, I want to invite Nicole Bera to give her response to Elaine's presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Esme. And thank you very much, Elaine. And uh, uh, I think before I, I start, I, I really want to thank Elaine for this uh, uh, break, breakthrough work and uh, in, innovative work that really helped us uh, you know, increase our understanding of gender equality in education and to monitor it for better and more effective accountability. The education is the fundamental human right that we all, all must enjoy. Yet for decades, girls have been deprived and are still deprived of this basic right and their access to, to education was much lower and is still so that than that of girls in uh, of boys in many countries around the world and this despite international binding and non-binding treaties instruments against discrimination and more specifically uh, against gender discrimination in education for decades international and national efforts have been to improve girls and women access to education and this has worked for example, there, there are more girls in and completing school than ever before, and gender parity in enrollment is now achieved in more countries than 25 years ago. But does, does this mean that uh, gender equality has also been achieved? No, I'm afraid. Gender equality is more than equal numbers of girls and boys and women and men, and it remains a distant goal. It won't be achieved if relevant laws and policies are not in place. Advancing gender equality requires to change our mindset and to move the spotlight from gender parity that does not give us the world picture, as Elaine said before, to pay due attention to substantive gender equality. In other words, to cultural, social, institutional, and legal barriers that, he, that, uh, that still hold back uh, gender equality achievement. While keep working to ensure that girls have access to schools on equal foods as boys, 
There is a need to ensure their rights are protected within education itself, and then benefit of equal learning opportunities as boys free from gender bias and stereotypes. Conceived and developed in 2015 by Hélène, the framework we are present today help us increase understanding of the substantive reason behind persisting gender inequality in education. It is a great opportunity to interrogate the way we have been dealing with gender equality so far. In doing so, it helps improve its monitoring to but uh, uh, it's monitoring does uh, to better uh, and uh, more effectively hold uh, education actors and stakeholders to account for their commitment, including financial commitment made by G7 uh, countries. The framework proposed a, broad, a broader visions of gender equality that address the different issues related to, gen to girls and women education while recognizing the need to protect the right to education of boys and men as well as people with different sexual orientation and uh, uh, different gender identity. The gender equality framework main objective, main objective is to improve the availability and accessibility of quantitative and qualitative data on gender equality. It helps identify gender issues to address, indicators to monitor those issues across the different uh, domain of the framework while examine, examining uh, existing laws and policies outside and inside education to address gender inequalities. Then the framework make, makes it possible to monitor country actual commitments to overcome discrimination and barriers to gender equality outside and inside education systems. It is a key instrument to help countries to improve their education sector plans, make them more gender responsive and build their education, their national capacity accordingly. I would like to stress that in line with the core SDG agenda principle of leaving no one behind, there is a need to pay more attention to intersecting inequalities to make gender equality in education more inclusive of a greater, for a greater social justice. And this framework help having such an intersectional, intersectional approach. Using a free branch right-based approach to gender equality, that is right to, right in, and right through education, the gender equality monitoring framework proposed six domains that help frame the dis discussion of gender equality to in and free education. The, the slide you have there here uh, and the diagram uh, uh, show you the way we have ourselves trying to, to conceptualize the breakthrough work that uh, Elaine has, uh, has initiated. So the framework that you have, uh, you are, you have in front of you uh, has uh, six uh, domains, including the first domain, educational opportunities, uh, meaning uh, mainly in terms of uh, equal number for boys and girls and men and women in education, in other words, gender parity. Then we have gender norms, 
values and attitudes. Why is so important to reflect this in, in, the, in the framework is because really gender norms and value discriminatory gender norms really frame everything, including laws and policies. That's why it's so important to now, uh, as I said before, change our mindset to really focus on what really matters, what is really needed to, to advance gender equality. And the framework also include a domain in what we call institution outside education. Why is it so important? Because gender equality in education will not happen if outside education, there is no a firm commitment to, to make it happen. That's why it's so important to, to keep the link between what is going on outside and what is going on inside education. Uh, so it's also important now to pay really attention to laws and policy, education laws and policy uh, themselves within education system that, that guarantees the right to education for boys and girls and for men and women and for what now we call soji population, meaning people with different sexual orientation and uh, different gender ident identity. Uh, it's also important to look at, uh, as I said, what is really going on inside education uh, itself in terms of, of uh, resources, the di distribution between uh, distribution, both in terms of finance and teachers, teaching and learning practice and learning environment. And finally, as Elaine said, it's also important now to, to, to see what uh, you know what 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 next you know if gender equality is to be achieved in education that will not necessarily mean that it will be achieved uh in uh, at, in uh, society at large because as i said it's really important to have a holistic approach to these issues because everything is uh, are uh, everything are linked and the education is a reflect reflection of what is going on at the society uh, as a whole. So how are we using this gender equality uh, framework? We at the GEM report have been using this framework particularly in its gender report. Of the many indicators that we have identified in the, in the, the broad frameworks, we are using uh, select uh, 30 select indicators, both in the gender uh, report itself and the discussion we are, that, that is taking place in this report, but also these indicators are published at the back of, uh, of this report. Secondly, monitoring a progress towards gender equality also means not only to have quantitative data, but also to have a sense of changes in national laws and policies, which the GEM report is also now doing. To this effect, we are developing country profiles on legal and political framework to advance gender equality in education. The objective of this activity is to collect information on existing laws and policies or lack of to advance gender equality in order to monitor the extent to which countries are translating on the ground recommend laws and policies by both CEDO Article 7 and General Recommendation 36, 
and the Education 2030 Framework of Action. So compilation of information on existing laws and policies is based on the template of questions reflecting these recommend policies across six uh, sections, uh, including uh, countries' commitment to gender equality more broadly, education laws, plans, policy, and programs, education systems in terms of school-related gender-based violence, teacher training, and women presence in education workforce, gender-responsive budgeting and finance, meaning gender-responsive budgeting, but also equitable funding mechanisms. And of course, the issue of gender norms, values, and practice, because it's so important to challenge discriminatory gender, uh, gender norms if gender equality is to happen. And finally, it's really important to, to have in place mechanism for, to monitor gender equality in education. And the, the AG project, it's a way, it's one, one way of doing so. And it's so important, uh, uh, that's why it's so important this work. So development of, of country profile is a long-term exercise with building blocks add each year's based on on focus areas in the gender report and its gender uh, report. The work was launched in 2020, foc focusing on select strategic objectives and actions of the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action, which uh, 25th anniversary was celebrated last year and covered in the 2020 gender report. So this, uh, 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 building block that we used last year include the issue uh, pertaining to early pregnancy and education, school counseling for higher education, teaching and learning materials, women in the education workforce, and school-related gender-based violence. The work has started with 40 countries across the different world and world regions, including those where gender gaps are highest but it aims to be more global in coverage. Thank you for listening and thank you for attention. Thank you very much, Nicole, for the deep reflections on the gender equality framework that has been used in the GEM report. And at this juncture, allow me to invite Yan Chung to give her response. Thank you. Thank you very much, Esme. Let me share my screen. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, it's a great pleasure to join the distinguished panel uh, this morning uh, for you this afternoon. For those of you who may not know uh, our office, Human Development Report Office, we are a small research office, independent research office uh, located at uh, UNDP, United Nations Development Program. Um, our mission is to advance human development uh, through research, data analysis, outreach, and advocacy. The human development approach is the people-centered approach. Um, so in our view, progress in human development is linked to expanding freedoms, capabilities, and functionings of individuals. So today, my presentation will focus on the gender indices and dashboards we produce at the Human Development Report Office. As Ilya mentioned earlier, uh, uh, education should not be looked at uh, alone. It should be linked to other aspects of development. So I'm going to talk about uh, uh, the current gender indices we are produced uh, uh, in, the, in the office, but also uh, uh, some uh, new dashboards we wrote out recent, 
recently. Then last, uh, I'm going to uh, introduce a new uh, gender, a new generation of gender indices we are uh, uh, going to launch in two months time. So I'll uh, uh, give you a bit of a history. Uh, our office started publishing the Human Development Report back in 1990. So last year we celebrated a 30 year anniversary. So we publish a global human development report every year. We also publish the key measure of well-being, the Human Development Index. So the Human Development Index was developed to challenge the idea that a nation's progress could be assessed by its economic growth, um, uh, GDP, usually measured by GDP. But, uh, the Human Development Index we publish in the office uh, is to provide a simple measure of human progress built around people's freedom to live the lives they want to. The Human Development Index has gained popularity with its uh, simple uh, but comprehensive formula that assess a population's average longevity, education, and income. So after 30 years, this index still remains a very popular development index. Uh, over the years, there has been growing interest in providing a more comprehensive set of measurements that capture both critical, other critical dimensions of human development. So uh, our office responded to uh, this cause with new measures of uh, aspects of human development to complement the HDI, Human Development Index, uh, we have been producing in 1990. These uh, missing dimensions include uh, poverty, inequality. Uh, it also includes uh, uh, gender gaps uh, and also include uh, other dimensions of poverty. So since 2010, uh, we have been publishing an inequality adjusted HDI, uh, which adjusts a nation's human development index value for inequality within each of the components. Then joined with uh, OFI, uh, we also published a multidimensional poverty index uh, to capture deprivations more directly. Similarly, our efforts to measure gender inequalities began in the 1995. Then currently we produce two important uh, gender indices in our annual report. One is gender inequality index, GRI. The other is a gender development index, GDI. So let me give you a little bit of a, a timeline. So uh, the gender issue uh, was reflected in our very first report in 1990, but we started uh, uh, publishing some gender related uh, measurement uh, uh, index in 1995. So we have, uh, we have published this uh, old uh, gender related development index and gender empowerment measures from 1995 to 2009. Then we reformed these indices, and in 2010, we rolled out this new gender inequality index. Then four years later, we complement GRI with this new gender development index. So other indices, statistical tables, and the statistical dashboards have also been added to provide a more comprehensive perspective of the relative data to assess countries' human development, including uh, the gender aspects. Uh, for example, in the current uh, reports, we included two gender-related dashboards. One is called Core Life Course Gender Gap uh, Dashboard. The other is a Women's Empowerment uh, Dashboard. And then last year, 
we introduced a new gender index called Gender Social Norms Index, which has been received a lot of positive uh, feedback. Then because of this uh, positive feedback this year, we're going to do an update on this uh, Gender Social Norm Index. Then uh, in July this year, we're going to uh, roll out, uh, 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 as I said earlier, new generation of gender indices jointly with human women. So let me give you a little bit of uh, details of uh, some of these indices, because I think uh, they will be nice complementaries to what Elian and uh, Nicole presented uh, just now. So this slide just show you the current gender indices and dashboards we have in office. So uh, 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 this slide and next slide give you a, a snapshot of what we uh, uh, construct uh, in GDI and GI. So GDI measures disparities in the human development index by gender. So it's simply calculated as a ratio of female HDI versus male HDI. Then we use very simple uh, 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 formula. We look at three dimensions, long and healthy life, knowledge or education and standard of living. Then we, we are looking at four indicators, gender disaggregated indicators. Then data sources are all from uh, uh, UN agencies or uh, other international organizations. Then for the gender inequality index, GRI, which is a very, very popular gender uh, index, uh, widely used by academia and uh, policymakers. It measures gender inequalities in empowerment. Uh, 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 the value of GD, GRI ranges from zero, where women and men fare equally, to one, where one gender fares as poorly as possible in all measured dimensions. Uh, but of course, you find most countries, uh, all the countries, uh, falling between these two uh, extremes. Then again, we are looking at three dimensions reproductive health, empowerment, and the labor market. This is a very popular index. Uh, but over time, we also have received a lot of uh, comments, feedback, and criticism on GDI and GRI. So we have been constantly and continuously working on making these indices better. Then, uh, then here, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about the new gender, uh, uh, gender social norm index we rolled out last year. Because uh, as, uh, as uh, Esme mentioned, at at the opening of today's event, uh, uh, over the past uh, 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 century, there have been remarkable progress made on gender equality in terms of basic uh, rights, political, economic, and social rights. But on the other hand, the world is not uh, on track to achieve gender equality by 2030. So uh, 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 our GRI, Gender Inequality Index, already shows overall progress in reducing gender inequality has been slowing in recent years. So why is progress towards some aspects of gender equality getting slower and more difficult? Uh, in our 2019 Human Development Report, we argue that um, the progress towards gender equality is confronting moving targets and uh, inequality traps. Uh, what do we mean? We mean uh, we meant that uh, disadvantaged groups from data we have observed disadvantaged groups catching up uh, in terms of basic capabilities, but they lag behind uh, in enhanced capabilities. But these enhanced capabilities are crucial for women and girls to empower themselves to reach the full potential. 
So for example, in about 50 countries, we have observed women have achieved uh, more education than men, but we also observe they work longer hours, but earn a 40% less income than their male counterparts. So that's why social norms are central to the understanding of these dynamics. Gender inequality has long been associated with persistent discriminatory uh, social norms prescribing social roles and power relations between men and women in society. So our gender social norm index uh, look at four dimensions, then seven indicators constructed based on responses from the World Values Survey. So it's a very simple index, it's not perfect, but uh, uh, we have uh, used this index to stress the importance of combining different dimensions to assess biases against gender equality. So that's why this uh, uh, gender social norm index has received a lot of, lot of attention. So we believe going forward, we are going to uh, continue uh, the work on social norms because social norms are not directly observed, but their effects are influential in defining social outcomes. So we believe this should be monitored and presented and shared. Um, last year, because of COVID, uh, we also uh, constructed two new uh, gender-related dashboards. One look at crisis and capabilities at risk. The other look at safe space, uh, balanced care work, and uh, agency. Because of the time uh, constraint, I'm not going to uh, go to the details of these two dashboards, but I, uh, all what I present today are available on our website. Please uh, feel free to check out. So these are the very rich uh, uh, source of information. We look at four dimensions, for example, in the dashboard for uh, crisis and capabilities and risk. Then for the other uh, dashboards, we look at uh, three dimensions. We look at human development dimension, safe space and balanced care work and agency dimension. The man, many of these uh, dimensions indicators were also mentioned uh, earlier uh, in the Elaine's presentation and Nico's presentation. So I think uh, we are reaching a consensus. What are the important indicators we need to monitor and uh, use to measure the progress made on gender equality? I want to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about uh, the new uh, gender indices we're about to launch in July. Uh, as mentioned earlier, even though GDI and GRI have been uh, featured in our report every year, they have received a lot of uh, 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 positive uh, uh, attention, but we're also aware of the issues and challenges faced by these two indices. In particular, for the popular GRI, Gender Equity in Index, um, it, it has been criticized uh, 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 many uh, because it mixed absolute and relative uh, indicators in the, in the index, and also it mixes empowerment and well-being. So now uh, in this new, gen new work with, uh, jointly with your woman, we tried to uh, uh, construct it, uh, two separate indices, but these two separate indices uh, work as a twin uh, uh, in the sense that they need to be uh, uh, examined together to get a full picture, to help you to get a full picture of where women's uh, 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 status uh, uh, stands. So here is a very um, 
very simple uh, framework we are uh, trying to uh, use to construct these two twin gender indices. One index will look at the relative status of women versus men in terms of achievements. Then the other index will focus on the agency, agency aspect, focus on the empowerment aspect. So the uh, second index will uh, measure the absolute level of women's empowerment. So you can say one index is on relative well-being or achievements, the other index is on absolute empowerment. Um, then for the first index, we are looking at four dimensions uh, in terms of life and good health, in terms of education, skills, and knowledge, in terms of labor and financial inclusion, and also uh, in terms of participation in decision-making. For the absolute uh, uh, status of women's empowerment index, we are looking at uh, the same four dimensions plus one dimension freedom from violence. Uh, in the literature, uh, then in, we, 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 we are aware sometimes the freedom from violence is included in the life and good health dimension, but we think it is so important uh, aspect of uh, gender empowerment, we decided to uh, use uh, to, 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 to include it as a separate dimension in our construction of the Women's Empowerment Index. So I'm not going to uh, go over all the indicators we used in the construction of these two indices, but I will give you a taste of uh, what education indices we are looking at in both uh, uh, in, in index construction. So for the education dimension, we look at two indicators. One is population with completed secondary education or higher. In the previous uh, 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 trials of uh, uh, reforming uh, gender uh, education uh, indices, we have been looking at other uh, educational indicators, but we feel as, as a society making progress, um, then the primary education or even secondary education uh, uh, indicators are not enough to capture the enhanced capabilities we need to monitor. So that's why in this uh, 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 joint project, we are looking at population with completed secondary education or higher. The, the data on tertiary education we have looked at as well, but the data is not uh, very, uh, uh, doesn't have the uh, good country coverage yet. So that's why uh, we, we, we didn't uh, go directly to the tertiary completion of the tertiary education. Then the other uh, indicator uh, we use in this dimension is youth aged 15 to 24 who are not in education, employment or training. So this is the indicator we got from IAO, ILO. Uh, it is very important This education is not only about schooling, it's also about uh, training and other uh, uh, educational opportunities when you get out of school. So that's why we are looking at this uh, indicator need. Um, maybe uh, uh, I will uh, uh, also mention, uh, uh, you know, uh, some value added uh, we think these two new uh, indices will uh, bring to the to the to the vast uh, arena of gender indices. Uh, we believe our uh, twin indices uh, allow us to look at the relative gender gaps and absolute levels of uh, empowerment uh, separately. So, which address some of the criticism uh, um, uh, 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 we have received on our GI. Then uh, it also include gender-based violence indicator. That's uh, one of the innovation we believe our indices have, uh, have uh, embraced.
So because of time constraint, I'm not going to the uh, details of the, this uh, two indices, but we uh, are going to launch them <laughs> uh, in July. Then we strongly recommend you to uh, pay attention to our uh, uh, launch event uh, notification. Then we uh, also welcome your feedback after they are introduced uh, in the summer. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Yang Chun, for the for your presentation, and you have uh, made let us go through the journey the Human Development Report Office has undertaken over the years uh, in, in a strive to come up with a better measurement for gender equality. And I think this is in line with what Aji is trying to do. Thank you very much. At this uh, moment, let me invite Sharon to make to give her response to the presentation. Thank you. Great. Thank, thank you, Esme, and thank you to all the presenters. And thank you for providing me the opportunity to give some reflections on the AG framework that Elaine presented. And some of these reflections are also applicable to Nicole's presentation on the GEM report and Yanchun's uh, presentation on the UNDP's gender indices. Um, before I start, for those of you who may not be familiar with the Girls' Education Challenge, um, it's a 12-year FCDO-funded program aiming to improve educational opportunities for marginalized girls. Um, through 41 different projects across 17 different countries. Uh, I feel very privileged to be the um, our education director and team leader of the GCFM. And I also feel very privileged to be here to discuss the, the framework, the AG framework, because it is extremely per pertinent to the GEC, um, as it's something that the GEC is very well positioned to potentially contribute to, as well as benefit from on many levels. Uh, conceptually, operationally, politically. So I think I, I wanted to frame my reflections today um, through those three prisms, conceptual, operational, and political. Um, I should also note that uh, Elaine shared a paper uh, with me that provides a bit more of an elaboration um, on the AG framework than what was presented today, uh, particularly with regard uh, to its uh, capability approach underpinnings. So I'll try not to get into too much detail, but I was really taken by that paper and I'm not sure if it's in the public domain yet, but I would highly recommend it. Um, so that said, from a conceptual perspective, I, I really applaud the aim to engage with the metrics and measurement discourse and agree with all of the critiques of using um, gender parity as a metric for gender equality and gender injustice in education. Um, as everyone, uh, many of us have noted today, um, capturing the ratios of females versus males with regards to things like enrollment or completion, it might be necessary, but certainly not sufficient. And so um, with the use of the capability approach to widen the conceptual framing and understanding of gender equality and gender injustice in education is music to my ears. Um, and particularly as, as noted in the paper that Elaine shared with me, um, you know, metrics often only focus on achievements or, or functionings uh, such as literacy levels, enrollment, exam scores. And this doesn't necessarily take into, into account the personal and social and environmental constraints, particularly those related to gender, um, like a chore burden, uh, violence that was mentioned earlier. Um, and these things can have a significant, significant effect on girls' 
capabilities or opportunities to even begin to make progress on any of those achievements or, or functionings. So certainly widening the metrics and measurements to acknowledge capability constraint also widens and nuances any subsequent policy or intervention. Um, something that was I, I kind of noted because the GC was mentioned in the paper um, was that you know there are a lot of individual level data sets that look at um, capabilities or opportunities for individual girls, and these are often compiled by smaller scale projects, much like those um, in the GC. But there's a sort of disconnect between those data sets and any sort of institutional or system level processes um, or data sets, and, and that's entirely correct. And although some of the GC projects uh, work with and through governments, schools and systems, they aren't set up to be system strengthening programs that work at scale. Um, so a lot of the data sets are quite specific to project, projects themselves, uh, which by nature is also the focus of, of these projects to um, focus very specifically on specific girls, subgroups of marginalized girls. Um, so this starts to speak to some of the reflections I was having um, regarding the operationalization of the AGIF framework, um, how to connect those more nuanced um, data around capabilities into more macro institutional processes, analyses, programming. Um, I had I had the benefit in this paper of being able to look at some examples of, of the wide variety of indicators and, and sources of data that were proposed for the framework. And my first thought was, wow, what a very rich and helpful, you know, kind of breadth of, of information. But then my sort of practical side started nagging at me and asking, um, you know, who would be uh, the person or group to be collecting and analyzing this vast amount of information and data um, with such a, a variety of sources, um, gathering, analyzing is, is quite a task, particularly across many different country and contexts. Um, that's not a reason not to do it at all, uh, but something that, that um, obviously has to be thought through. And then there are lots of other technical issues, which I'm sure have already been thought through, things like aggregating and weighting, are there certain standards that need to be met for every indicator? Who and how is this determined? Um, I'm sure you thought this through. Um, and then there are those indicators that are located more at the micro level. Um, there were things like teaching practice and training, levels of confidence and choice amongst girls. And, um, you know, and this is data that is very much collected by many GEC projects and could potentially contribute. Um, and then again, my practical side, it, it raised the issues um, that these are relatively small samples, um, certainly relative to a country context and, and not necessarily representative samples. Um, and then there's issues of comparability. You know, we have GC projects that might be in the same country, but go about collecting data against similar things in very different ways um, with different levels of, of reliability and robustness. So again, this starts to speak to the ability to do cross-country comparisons um, given the different types and levels of, of data. And so therefore cross-country comparisons might only be indicative, but I could be wrong. You know, that was just the sort of reflection that I was taking away. Um, and particularly for those countries that might, might not be doing well, um, they may challenge, you know, the ability to compare. But that being said, I really see, you know, saw the value of using this kind of rich and varied um, sort of sources of data 
to provide a more nuanced situational analysis to guide individual countries' education sector planning. Um, and that would be incredibly valuable if it's not already being done. And so finally, this leads to uh, my final reflection on the political. And um, in, in working on the GEC over the past year, I've come to reflect on the number and type of requests uh, by donors like FCDO for all data analysis reporting to be very short, sharp, and high level. And this is not to say that there isn't an appreciation or complexity, uh, appreciation for complexity or nuance, but there's often a lack of time or space for engagement. And I've also reflected that many political decision makers that don't necessarily have a background in gender or education, um, that, that also presents a demand for simplicity, be it of concept, of indicator, of target, of explanation, that can then be turned into a soundbite. Um, so again, this is a reason not to push the political discourse surrounding girls' education to be more complex and nuanced, but it's definitely worth being aware of the constraints that shape the demand for these short, sharp, high-level reductive approaches, and how and to what degree the AG framework can and should interface with this. So this leads to my final reflection uh, that despite some of the tensions that I've highlighted, I absolutely applaud the aim um, to take what by nature, a reductive indicator, and try to broaden it into a framework of indicators that reflect the nuance and complexity surrounding gender equality and gender injustice in education. Um, I, I, I really applaud that. Um, and it is an, a challenging task with many things to think through practically, but absolutely worth doing. And I hope I can speak on behalf of my GC colleagues by saying that we would be very happy to contribute in any way that we can. So thanks very much and thanks for the opportunity. Thank you very much, Sharon. And uh, thank you for your reflections on the gender equality measurement and, as, and the G framework as it relates to the work that you're doing at GCE. And uh, this marks the ends of our presentations. And at this time, this, this is uh, mindful of the time that now it's a four o'clock. Um, we are supposed to have a Q and A with the audience. Esme, I, I've, 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 I've had, I've got two questions which maybe I should try to respond to and uh, others might want to pick up. Shall I, shall I respond? Is that okay, Esme, to respond to the two questions? There's one question about the aid, the aid cuts, and one question uh, about uh, indicators and um, that indicators themselves might be gender biased. Can I respond on those two questions? Yes, I think you can. Go ahead, Elaine. Thank you. Thank you, Esme. And uh, uh, adding my thanks to Yanchen and Sharon and Nicole for um, a lots of information about indicators, lots of ways that we can work together and complement each other's work. And um, you know, the, the kind of agi idea of building a community of practice around people, this kind of nerdy <laughs> concern with indicators, but also the big picture stuff about trying to bring about change. I really appreciate your, your reflections. 
the eight cuts are, are desperate. I, I, I think uh, everybody, everybody looks at them uh, with, you know, a long silence of, after, of, after hearing about them. Maybe they will be short-lived. Maybe the economy will bounce back. Maybe they will presage some changes. And um, but I, I suppose part of the picture I was presenting was to be pragmatic. We can't make the world perfect. We can critique the things that are wrong, but we must work with what we have. What we have is an emerge a huge professional interest in gender equality and education amongst researchers, amongst policymakers, amongst practitioners, and amongst activists. And that's what we must work with. And if we can draw down aid to support it, great. If we have to use other ways of um, being heard and engaging with it, that's that'll also be what we'll do but i don't i'm i'm, I'm not uh, i hope we won't and this kind of activity won't be silenced the, the the question about indicators being gender biased is a really interesting question because the whole process of collecting indicators and there's a, a literature about how you know the indicator people don't go up to the top floors in tower blocks to collect data or into the most rural areas or into the worst areas of slums so that the indi the, 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 the statistics are biased um, in some way, and we, we don't see the worst off, we don't see the worst elements of, of gender inequality aspects. And I think that's part of the rationale for this constant review and um, discussion. Um, in the paper Sharon was talking about, which is under review for a journal, and um, we can share draft versions if people email us for it. Um, this, the, 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 the dynamic of constant discussion at every stage in relation to every one of the indicators in uh, every one of the domains in the AG framework. It's that process um, of discussion, review, drawing down multiple data sources that we hope we can um, uh, hold the, the, those concerns with the bias of the indicators in play. I think that. That's the best we can do uh, to, to have this open participatory process. Thank you, Ismay. I, I don't know if other if I hand back to you and you maybe um, talk to um, some of the questions uh, Sharon and Nicole and Yantrin might like to pick up. Um, Oh, thank you, Elaine, for the response. Oh, um, I now invite there's Sharon. There's one more to me on, on patriarchal elements, but maybe Nicole and Yanchun and Sharon would like to pick up the question on gender bias in the indicators, and then I'll reply to the question on patriarchal attitudes. Yeah, uh, maybe concerning the, the question on uh, indicators being uh, how to avoid them being gender, gender bias, I think, as Elaine said, it's really also to, to start with the data collection itself, because uh, it's really important to make, to make sure that uh, uh, those we, are really want, we really want to reach in terms of policies and laws are also visible in, in tools 
to identify the problems, you know? And often data collection is, uh, is biased in the sense that uh, those who are really left behind are marginalized, including uh, gen uh, girls. But uh, I think when we say girls, women, it's really important to look at uh, and intersecting uh, inequalities, gender inequalities, because this is also where, you know, for instance, girls living in remote areas, they are not, they may not necessarily be visible in, 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 uh, in uh, data collection instruments and tools. So it, it's really important to, to, for, for policies to really be relevant in terms of targeting really those who are really need to be rich. It's really important that they are, they are based on, on uh, relevant tools where problems are really made uh, more visible. So I think this will be my takeaway with this uh, question. And concerning um, the, the question about gender norms and how to, 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 to measure them, I think, uh, um, you know, gender norms have been, uh, have been uh, measured and the surveys first by uh, the World, World uh, Value Surveys. So there, there are, this is an important, tools to collect information on values, beliefs, and uh, attitudes that now we can use uh, to, you know, to, to, to analyze uh, education data, because I really think that it's important to, when we are dealing with all these issues, to really trying to, to understand why is it that we still have barriers? Why is it that uh, it's so difficult to move beyond uh, no parities to really get to the hearts of the problems. So there are tools already out there. And also if you, you take also the example of uh, the European um, Europe uh, barometers, it's also another instrument that collects data on values. And uh, this is also where uh, it's so important to go beyond the gender parities because in number of most uh, European countries, gender parities is achieved or even you have more girls in school enrolled than boys, uh, particularly at upper secondary education. But this is also uh, the Euro, Euro uh, barometer also showed us that uh, there is a kind of backlash in terms of gender uh, gender equality in a number of uh, European countries, in particular those uh, uh, in east, east, eastern part of of Europe where there is a kind of regression in terms of gender, gender equalities. So I think I said before that gender equality remains a distant goal. This is really true all over the world that we are not yet there, there because of pre uh, prevailing and still existing gender, no, uh, gender discrim discriminatory norms that are really pervasive across countries. So I think it's important to bring this, uh, this uh, uh, issue of gender norms and the fact that they are really shaping everything. And if they are not challenged, I think uh, it will be really hard to, to advance gender equality. Thank you very much, Liko. I think Liko said all. <laughs> On uh, social norms, as uh, we are getting more and more data, like a World Value Survey, now we have 2005, 2009 survey, and also 2010, 2014. So we can compare the social norms uh, 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 over time. 
and we can also have the gender disaggregated uh, analysis. Then in our uh, research in the office, we, uh, uh, we use the simple index count. We also use the uh, more complicated methodology to uh, look at uh, the, 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 the social, how social norms have been uh, spread. So uh, uh, really, because of the time constraint, uh, I cannot elaborate more, but I really I encourage you to look at our report. It's a short report, but with also some uh, country uh, uh, features. So you can see uh, between men and women, uh, uh, between countries, there's a, different, there's a difference. Then uh, that's something we should take into account when we come up to our policy making. Um, so I will stop here. We are now just got one minute left to, to closing time. So I think at this moment, I would like to thank the presenters. All of you were brilliant and we all enjoyed your presentation, which was very, which were very illuminative and informative, informative. And I also want to thank the audience and for the questions that you have posed and uh, we will come, we will respond to the rest of the questions that you have put forward through email. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 